So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. This is kind of like a two-part series, although, you know, both in Colossians, two passages that I really like, maybe that's the thematic link, but, you know, I hope we, we can see a little bit more than just that. Colossians chapter 3, the, the text is chapter verses 1 through 17, but um, we're going to focus mainly on verses 1 through 4, so... You know, if it takes most of the time for one through four, don't panic that we're going to be here all day. So that won't actually be the case. But two weeks ago, we looked at Colossians chapter one, verses 15 through 20. And that is something like a, a hymn or a poem about Christ, if you remember. Remember, I even gave you the, uh, gave it to you on a sheet of paper where you could see how it was set in sort of poetic form. And poetry, doesn't really give you like these these set of practical how-tos, right? It's not that kind of thing. Poetry instead arouses our affections, doesn't it? That's what poetry does. And if you remember from the message two weeks ago, I really only gave you one point of application. And, and that is to appreciate the beauty and the glory of Christ. To appreciate the beauty and glory of Christ. And I hope you've been encouraged to be doing that in the last couple of weeks. And the way in which I think we saw that beauty is that this Christ, as he's set forth for us in that hymn, is the eternal Son of God, worthy of glory just because of who he is. As the eternal Son of God, preeminent over all things because of who he is. But then we also saw in the second stanza that this Son of God comes down into our world. He took on true humanity and he suffered and he died and then he rose from the dead in the highest, most exalted glory in human form. So really, that hymn tells us that Christ has two waves of glory about him. The first is the glory he has as the eternal Son of God, because of just of who he is. And then the second wave is the glory that he has as the incarnate Son as He has come down for us and for our salvation. And the incarnate glory is a reflection of the eternal glory. They are connected. And I think Paul includes this hymn at the very outset of this book so that we would appreciate the glory and beauty of Christ. But that's not the only reason he puts it here. He also puts it at the beginning of this book to set the stage for what is to follow. You see a major theme in this book, and perhaps no other book in the Bible has this theme so concentrated, is that theme is our union in Christ. The idea of being in Christ. Sharing, participating with Christ. That's a major theme in this book. And I think Paul puts that him at the very very outset, because he wants us to see the glory of Christ in his incarnate glory at the very beginning, so that when he comes along and says, guess what? You are in Christ. You share in this glory. We understand how deep and amazing that glory actually is. There's kind of a, a double whammy in this book. The first is just the staggering glory of Christ. That we're just amazed by the glory of Christ. It makes us go, wow. And the second one is, and you are united to this glory. You share in this glory. You are, you are a participant in this glory. Not the eternal glory, right? The incarnate glory. You share in that incarnate glory. You commune with Christ in His incarnate glory. And so, I think the purpose of this letter, we could say, is that we come to understand what it means to live before the face of this Christ in union with this Christ, in communion with this Christ. I think that's what Paul is explaining in this uh, letter overall. So, with that in mind, uh, let's look at the passage for this morning, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Let me read that, and as I said before, we'll spend most of our time on verses 1 through 4. So, don't 
worry if I take most of the time in that section, the sermon won't really last three hours or whatever uh, the appropriate ratio would be to get all the way to verse 17. Okay, chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with God and with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its evil practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, and circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word speaks to us such amazing truths that, that stagger us. We pray that we would be appropriately staggered, appropriately impressed in all, and that we would conform our lives to this reality that you say is true. Lord, give us faith to believe in promises that are beyond anything that we could think or imagine. And then give us the patience and the faithfulness to live out the reality of which they speak. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now there's so much in these passages that we can't explore all of it this morning. Uh, Remember... Here's how I think we we need to be guided. Remember, I said that the book you could look at as being about what it means to stand before the face of this Christ in whom we are united and with whom we have communion. We stand before this Christ in all his glory, knowing that we are connected to him. And, And as we do that, I think we realize three things about ourselves that we must keep in mind to to live appropriately before this Christ. And those three are that one, you have a new identity in Christ. Two, that you have a new call upon your life. And three, that you have a new manner of life. A new identity, a new call, and a new manner of life. If you're taking notes, that's the outline for today. So, first of all, you have a new identity. Look there at verse 1. We see that at the very beginning. If you have been raised with Christ, 
Right? So, so your identity in this passage is one who has been raised with Christ. That if you, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer this morning, you have been raised with Christ. That is who you are. You have also died. Verse 3, you have died. And it says it earlier in chapter 2 as well. You've died. That's something that is true about who you are, or really about who you aren't, right? You are no longer alive. You are no longer active in the realm in which sin has authority over you. You've died to that. That's who you are. Or look there at verse 4. We're seeing all these identity statements. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, that verse, besides saying something very profound about your future, also clearly says that Christ is your life. Christ is your life. Your identity is Christ. That is your new identity, to be found in him. This means that the meaning of your existence is found in Christ. Your nature is in partaking of Christ's nature. Christ is sharing His nature with you. Not not His divine nature, but His, His glorified human nature with you. You are hidden in Him. And that means you are fully identified with Him. He takes you as His own so that you can take Him as your own. Christ's history even becomes your history. You have died with Him. You are raised with Him. Who you are as a person, in the deepest, truest sense, is connected to, wedded to Christ in His resurrection glory. Think of it this way. If you were to explain to somebody uh, kind of who you are, if, if I were to, you know, I, I know very few of you, um, this is, even those who I've known, this is very brief conversations. If I were to have a conversation and say, so who are you? Well, you might talk some about your history, right? Well, I was born in such and such a place, and, and I grew up, and, and I went to school here, and, and I got married, or I stayed single, and I had these children, or maybe I, I lost a good friend from cancer. You know, you, you would tell something about your history, because the person you've come to be flows out of your history in, in some sense. And that's basically what's going on here with your identity with Christ, but with an interesting twist to it. Because those events that shape your identity in Christ mostly happened before you were born. The death of Christ on the cross. You died with Him. The resurrection of Christ. You were raised with Him. And the event that hasn't happened yet is one that will happen in the future. When He returns, you will be revealed with Him in glory. So the history of Christ, you were in a very real way with Christ in his death and with Christ in his resurrection glory. And that history shapes your identity. Now, it's right at this point that we must remember the truth from Colossians chapter 1. Right, The death and resurrection of Christ were profound shaping events for his life. They changed him. He took upon himself a a human nature that was susceptible to death. How do we know that? He died. But he rose again in a glorified human nature that is incapable of death. He cannot die anymore. Death has no power over him. He was perfected, raised to the highest degree of glory in human form. And then he shares that glory with us. Or to put it another way, the events of Christ's death and resurrection are powerful shaping events for Christ. And as a result of our union with Him, they are powerful shaping events for us too. And we can only imagine then what it is like, what it will be like when Christ returns and the glory that He has already shared with us, that resurrection glory that we already have, becomes visible for all to see. Right? When He returns, then we will be revealed with Him in glory. That's what the text says. 
this hymn, or this, this not this hymn, Colossians chapter 3, plays with the, the imagery of hiding and revealing. Right? It says right there that your life, verse 3, is hidden with God in Christ. It is, the, the resurrection glory is every bit as real as it will ever be. You are raised with Him. All of it is yours. But it's hidden. I'll never forget a, a seminary professor uh, where, I, where I went to school named Al Groves was dying of cancer. His life on earth was being withered away. And he would talk about the resurrection, but you would expect him maybe to talk about the resurrection that he would have, right? But no, he talked about the resurrection that he already has in Christ. He would say, I already am raised with Christ. Now, he has that resurrection life. He will still be raised, right? He will be raised visibly. It will come a time when his body comes out of the grave and he is glorified with Christ glorified, with Christ glorified body visibly for all to see. But he, he very accurately talked about how he already has that resurrection life. He's already passed over from death to life, as Jesus said. He's only waiting for that day to be that resurrection life to be fully revealed. You know, I think it's also helpful in this point to um, realize the the false teaching that Paul was challenging when he wrote about this. You see, there were some false teachers going around then that were were talking about that uh, the way in which you would have the quote fullness. That that's the word they used. They would offer this fullness to you. The false teachers were offering this kind of fullness. And what they meant was, you have to do these practices, and then you'll get the fullness. Or we might translate that in our day, something like the good life, your best life. You do these practices, and then you can have your best life. And that usually meant for the these Gnostic false teachers in Paul's day, you had to submit to certain regulations. That's why Paul in this letter talks about, you know, do not touch or do not taste or refrain from this. These things you had to do so that you could achieve and receive the fullness, as they said. Now, Paul is countering that by telling people that the greatest fullness there could ever be is the fullness of Christ. That's the fullness beyond any other fullness. It's life beyond any other life because it is God's glory, the fullness of God's glory manifested in human form. There can be no greater fullness than that. And then Paul says, guess what? You already have that fullness if you have Christ. You already have that glory because you're united to Him. So don't... Don't submit to those demands of those false teachers because they're trying to sell you something that you already have far greater. And their way of getting, their way of selling it to you doesn't work anyway. Now, let me just raise one possible objection you might have to, to what we've seen here in this passage and, uh, and hopefully clarify something here. And that is the, the issue of timing here related to our union with Christ. You might say to me, as we've, we've looked at this idea of our identity with Christ, you, say, you might say, Mike, I don't quite understand this. Did I die and rise again with Christ 2,000 years ago when He died and rise again, rose again? Or, or did I get that death and resurrection with Christ when I actually believed and therefore was united to Him? You see, see the dilemma you could say? When did I die and rise with Christ? Was it when he did? Which this seems to suggest. Or was it when I believed and therefore was united to him? Because I'm united by faith. If you asked me that question, I would say yes. And then try to change the subject. <laughs> but if you wouldn't let me, I would then add, but don't try to make the timing sequence fit into your linear understanding of time. You see, as, as if you look at church history, you'll see that this timing issue related to union with Christ has really messed people up. And they can't quite hold both of these together. So either the union with Christ in his death and resurrection becomes simply a metaphor. 
It's not really you being actually united with Christ in his death and resurrection. It's just sort of, you know, a way of talking that will inspire us, right? It's just a metaphor. Or they end up saying that nothing much in particular happens the moment you believe. You see, they minimize the real transition that happens when we actually believe and are united with Him. And I think the answer really is to say that both of these are true. In one sense, we are united with Christ truly and really in His death and in His resurrection. We we were with Christ then. We died with Him. We were raised with Him. And in another sense, we were and are united with Christ and and died with Him and rose with Him at the moment in which we believed. We just can't make the timing of it fit together. Quick aside here, um, but you know what? There's a there's a group of people, when I've talked about this reality, who have no trouble at all accepting this. You know who they are? Exactly. Yes. I was wondering if I should go here, but yes, this confirms that I should. The quantum physicist, right? In quantum physics, you have to reckon with the fact that time is relative. Time is not a constant. The speed of light is the constant. And you end up with all these things that seem paradoxical, but you have to accept them as true. From one perspective, an event can happen according to this time. Another perspective, an event can happen according to this time over here. Now, I've just exhausted everything I know about physics. And so if you ask me any questions about that, I'll just refer you to Google. Or maybe up here. Yeah, so, okay. Um, So please understand, I'm not saying that quantum physics offers us a paradigm for how to understand this. I'm simply saying, let's not be surprised when something doesn't fit into our very, very limited sense of timing. That ought not to surprise us or be an insurmountable objection. And it shouldn't obscure the fact that in a very real way, we are united to Christ in His death and resurrection. His death and resurrection was a powerful shaping influence in who Christ became in His resurrection glory. And so it is a powerful shaping effect, has a powerful shaping effect in who we are. We have a new identity. And along with this new identity, we also have a new call. This is point two. We have a new call. Verse one connects our identity to our call. Look there. If we have been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above. Our new identity necessitates a new call. Those who are raised up with Christ must seek the things that are above. And by the things that are above, Paul simply means Christ, right? Christ is above. We seek Christ. And then Paul gets at the same basic idea a little bit later in verse 3. Set your minds on the things above. Again, things above are Christ. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on Him. Now, both of these are commands. They're both imperative. If we are in Christ, if our identity is Christ, it is required that we seek Him. It's not optional. It's not for super mature Christians, those really serious about their faith. It's not for those who are struggling with besetting sins. Not just for them. I'm for it too. It's not just for those who are in deep trials in their lives. It's not just for adults. Kids, it's for you too. It's not just for young people. It's for old people. All who are identified with Christ must seek Him. They must seek the things that are above. Okay, but what does that actually mean to seek Christ? I, uh, when I was in seminary, we, you have to write practice sermons, and one practice sermon I wrote was on this passage. And it was not a very good sermon, and I'm very thankful that I can't find it anywhere. I haven't tried to look very hard, but I, I, it's, but yet at the time I actually liked it. And I remember giving it to somebody to read who, who liked this passage as well. And she said, you know, I've always wanted, and you know, after she read it, she said, I always wanted to know what it means to seek the things above. And I thought she was going to say, well, gee, thanks for explaining it. But she said, and, and after reading your sermon, I still want to know. <laughs> well, great. Thank, thanks so much for that encouragement. That's, that's really great. Right. And maybe you're going to come away thinking the same thing. Um, that's okay. If I've just encouraged you a little bit to explore these matters, that's all that I can ask for. 
But there are a few things I think we can say about seeking the things above that hopefully give some shape to it. And the first, and the most fascinating to me, is that we're commanded to seek what we already have. We're commanded to seek what we already have. The identity is the same as the call. Our identity is one who is raised with Christ. We are, we are already seated with Him in the heavenly places. That's where we are. We already share in that resurrection glory. We're raised up with Him. We're just waiting for that resurrection glory to be fully revealed. And now we're told to seek Him. We're told to seek where He is. But we're already there. We are given a command to be where Christ is when we're told that we already are where Christ is. Richard Gaffin puts it this way. He says, the force of what's going on here is that we must seek after what you already have because you already have it. Seek after what you already have because you already have it. The thing that is commanded is what we actually have. I'll say more of how we make sense of that. But the first thing we have to realize in terms of what this means to seek the things above is that it does not mean that we're seeking above what we have no possession of already. It's not that Christ is playing hard to get. And we have to first show that we're willing to seek to a certain extent before he'll say, here I am. He's not playing hide and seek with us. He's there. We already have Him. We are already raised up and in Him. Our life is already hidden with Him. He is ours. We are His. That's real. We have the fullness of Christ. And yet, until the day comes when Christ returns, and we are revealed with Him in glory, our experience will always fall short of the reality. For people who are raised up and seated with Him in the heavenly places, and I'm speaking more broadly about Christians in general here, but I'm sure, I'm sure it's true for here as well, we certainly have a lot of anxieties, right? We have sin. In one sense, we aren't yet what we will be, even though in another sense, we already are. So the command to seek the things above is a command to become who we already are in Christ with the confidence that we are really in Him, and with the confidence that one day we will be truly transformed into His glory, we seek Him now. We seek to increase the foretaste of what that future glory will be, which is already ours in Christ. The other thing I want to say about this, seeking the things above, setting our minds on the things above, that it is an activity of the mind and the heart and the habits. In some things that are written about sanctification today, I think there's a bit of a a false dichotomy here. Some people would say that sanctification is all about the mind. We just consider who we are in Christ and then yield to that reality, and that's that's the whole ballgame. Once we consider ourselves to be in Christ and yield to it, the battle is over. There's nothing left for us to do. And other people say, no, 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 no. Sanctification is about the heart and the habits. It's about developing a pattern of life that conforms to God's ways. And and when we develop that pattern, well, then our mind begins to change. And I want to say that actually both perspectives have a point there. There is a sense in which seeking the things above and setting our minds on the things above are essentially getting at the same reality, but they don't quite mean the same thing. And and setting our minds on the things above does, in some sense, have a priority. It needs to begin with your mind, because the reality that you have to conform your life to is not a reality that you can see. Right? You can't see it out there. It's something you must accept by faith. This is who you are in Christ by faith. I mean, if you look at your life, there's not going to be (laughs) evidence, irrefutable evidence, that you are raised with Christ in the same way Christ is raised. 
That's just not going to be there. So you accept it by faith first. And then the reality and the experience begins to follow. And so your mind must be engaged because faith is the, the root of all this. But as you set your mind on the things above and begin to seek the things above, namely Christ, it's a, it's a, a seeking that brings your entire life into that orbit. Your entire life conforms and bends and wraps itself around that goal of seeking Christ. I think we all know something of what this means. If you think about the way we, the way we work as humans, we typically identify something as life or the good life or the fullness of life, and then we seek that, don't we? We have an image of this is what life is all about, and then we, then we seek it. If the good life for you is financial security and the ability to do what you want, then you seek that. Everything is, is summoned for that goal. If, if the good life is a happy marriage, then you seek it, and quite often you kill it because you idolize it, but that's for another sermon. If the good life is respect from others at your job, well, then you seek that, and you work hard, and you care what others think, and you lie a little bit about what time you actually come in and what time you actually leave. We are creatures who hold out for us, for ourselves, some vision of what life is, and then we seek that. Well, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, Christ is your life. So, seek Him. If you've trusted in Christ, Christ is your life. It says right there, that there in verse 4, Christ is your life. So, seek Him. And if Christ is your life, that means that success in your job is not. If Christ is your life, then finding that relationship that you've wanted is not. So don't seek it as your primary goal. If Christ is your life, then a happy sex life is not. So stop idolizing it. If Christ is your life, then perfectly parented children are not. So don't wrap your identity around them. Christ is your life, so seek Him. And then all other things will be added in their appropriate time and appropriate way. And this leads us to the third point, And that is that we have a new manner of life. And, and really, this is just explaining and expounding upon the previous point of, of seeking Christ and the things above. It's, but it's using different words in this passage. It's using the language of putting off and putting on. Like clothing. We, we, we take off some clothing and we put other clothing on. That's, that's the imagery that Paul is using here. But what is so critical for us to see, and Paul stresses in various ways, is that the putting off and putting on is not in order to have a new identity, but because we already have it. The new identity comes first. We have Christ and now, in terms of our behavior and our manner of living, we put off and we put on. And it's imperative that we get the order right. Let me try to illustrate this with you. Hopefully you can have some fun with this illustration. Um, imagine with me that you have been exercising or, or have done something to make yourself really, really dirty. Right? I, I was an avid mountain bike racer for a number of years, and, and sometimes I would go out on the trails, and this probably wasn't good for the trails, but I don't do this anymore, and, and I would come back just caked in mud. I'd, I'd wear glasses, and so the only thing that would be, you know, my skin color would be my, my eyeballs right there, and everything else would be just caked in mud, right? Imagine you've just gotten yourself really, really dirty. Maybe you've been in the garden all day, right? You, you, you can imagine that, right? But what do you do? You take a shower, right? <laughs> And you scrub all the dirt and the grime off of you. And you become clean. Now, here's, here's the crux of the illustration. Imagine that as you're in the shower, kind of finishing up, your mind starts to drift to, I don't know, a recent conversation you had with a friend, or, or maybe a movie you watched uh, the other day, or, or something. And, and you're distracted. You're absent-minded. Um, some members of my family struggle that, with that more than others. Right? You know how that works. Now imagine that as you get out of the shower, instead of putting on the clean clothes that you've set out for yourself, you start putting on the dirty ones that you had just taken off. The filthy and grimy ones. 
What do you do? Well, hopefully you realize what's going on before you get very far. You, you wake up to what you're doing and you just, you just throw them off, right? You just get rid of them as fast as you can. You're even a bit revolted that you would put that back on your nice, clean body. And you just pick them up by the cleanest spot you can and, and put them in the dirty hamper where they belong. Here's my point. You throw those dirty clothes off not so that you will be clean, but because you already are. Those dirty clothes used to fit you just fine. right? When you're real dirty and sweaty and grimy, you don't care that your clothes are that way too. right? It just makes sense. It fits you. But when you're clean, you don't dare want those clothes to come back on your body. They're, they're not fitting you. They're incongruent in every way. The point here is that in our new identity in Christ, we, we take off the old manner of life, not so that we be, can become clean, not so that we can become united with Christ, but because we already are. Two, two kind of subpoints to draw out from this. Number one, don't try to change your nature by changing your behavior. That's what the false teachers were encouraging. You do these practices and then you get the fullness. And they thought that they could master these practices and they could kind of control and, and shape this glory into their own lives. And it's absurd to think that you could change your nature by adopting certain practices. And Paul says that that approach, though, can have the appearance, if you look in chapter 2, he says it has the appearance of wisdom for self-made religion, but in the end, it has no power against the indulgences of the flesh. That approach of changing your nature by changing your behavior has, a, has an appeal to it. It sounds right. It sounds religious. Adopt these practices. Do these things. And then over time, you will become this new kind of person. But that approach has no power over the fleshly indulgences. That's why pornography among religious people is sky high. That's why the Southern Baptist, and I'm part of that Southern Baptist church, the Southern Baptist just released, or there was just a study done where there were hundreds and hundreds of sexual abuse victims by pastors and churches, and that's just scratching the surface. See, they buy into a mode where religion is by our practices and it doesn't change their hearts. And we are susceptible to this. Say we go for about 10, 15, 20 years into the Christian life and, and we're not being as transformed in the way we would like to be transformed. And then somebody says, ah, the reason is you need to have this particular diet plan or you need to conform to these practices and, and then you'll achieve the fullness that you want. And Maybe it's rules that we make for ourselves, that we need to read so many chapters of the Bible per day. The problem isn't with diets or reading the Bible. That's not the problem. The problem is when we pretend that our union with Christ and the fullness of Christ is conditioned upon certain practices that we have to do. We make God's grace conditional. And we set up standards that we have to meet in order to get the fullness of His life. So, number one, don't try to change your nature by changing your behavior. Number two, do change your behavior in light of your nature. Throw off that dirty shirt because you wake up to the fact that you're clean. As Christians, we need to wake up to the fact that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And therefore, it is utterly inconsistent to act like we did before. It is inconsistent to live like the world. And I think as Christians, we're all a little bit like that distracted person getting out of the shower who is about to put on that dirty clothes and we need to wake up to who we are and throw them off and then put on that which does befit us, that which does make sense of who we are. The thought of putting back on behavior that is not who we are should, should physically revolt us. We need a sanctified gag reflex that just says, no, this is not who I am. When a lustful thought enters your mind, you need to be like, oh, that's, that's disgusting. 
given who I am in Christ. If a sense of bitter jealousy comes into your heart, you need to throw that off. And the way to cultivate that sanctified gag reflex is to set your minds on the things above. Live up there where where you belong. Treasure and contemplate and enjoy Christ. Now, the other thing you have to realize, and you know, I wish I could just go through all of these attributes here, but, but time will not allow for that. Uh, leave that for you to study on your own. The other thing, though, is that, uh, and I, I got this from Sinclair Ferguson, I think he's right here, that the, the putting off and putting on has sort of a layering approach to it, right? You're familiar with layering in the cold, right? You know, this is Frederick, you guys get a little bit colder weather than we do, and, you know, there's probably some hiking going on here, and you know about layers, right? You have your, your base layer, then you have your middle layer, and then you have your outer shell, and, and that's important. You can kind of see that mapped here on the text. The base layer of what we need to put off and put on is your inner motivations and your private thoughts and desires. That's in verse 5 where Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Your inner thoughts and desires must change to befit the kind of person you are in Christ. Your desires must change. You must have new wants, new passions. If you have secret desires for things that you know are so wrong, you must put them off. And you must not be like, well, I I know I crave this terrible, horrible thing, but I'll never do it, so I don't have to worry about it. Don't be so sure of yourself. And But more importantly, Scripture tells you, put it off. Put off your evil thoughts. Of course, that's easier said than done. It requires lots of prayer and and confession and and brothers and sisters praying with you and for you and setting your minds on the things above so you will desire them. Well, the second layer uh, that, that Sinclair Ferguson points out is what he calls everyday living. And Paul says, put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. This speaks of the kind of people who we are that those around us every day can see. What kind of person would your children say that you are? What kind of person would your spouse say that you are? What kind of person would those who drive next to you in your morning commute say that you are? We need to put off those habits and behaviors that would be natural for us if we were living only for the things in this world. If we only had our minds set on earthly things we would have certain practices and behavior. We need to put those off and put on the kinds that we have as people who belong above and are thinking about the things above. And finally, there's the things related to our church life. And this is in verses 10 through 17. 10 through 17 is all about the church. And you'll notice that this is the longest section by far, isn't it? And this is the section that has not only what we should put off, but also has what we should put on. It starts there in verse, um, in the verse that says, do not lie to one another. Notice his rationale for why we should not lie to one another is that we are all one in Christ. You see, all the implications for our identity with Christ are not simply individual, but they're communal. When we talk about our new identity, I don't just mean our identity as individuals, it's our identity as the body together. So yes, there are implications for me personally, right? My inner thought life, my inner motivations. But the most significant application here, where Paul gives the most attention, is for our life together. You can think to yourself, I am raised with Christ with these other beloved, other brothers and sisters in Christ. We are all one together. So I must look on them in a different way. My relationships must fit not only who I am, but who we are. And so I don't lie to them, is the application. Ferguson expands on this a little bit. He says, in other words, don't play, let's pretend in church. Let's have honest and real relationships with each other. We are new men and women in Christ, after all. 
Those who know who they are in Christ no longer need to pretend and hide themselves behind a mask. And notice here, Paul tells us not only what we should put off, but also what we should put on. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive and above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Well, there's so much here, and I'll leave that to you to study out all the particulars. But, but let me give you just a couple things here. Notice how this putting off and putting on is addressed to the church as the church. Right? It's addressed corporately, and it's addressed in light of their corporate identity in Christ. So, so notice it says there, it begins, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. It doesn't begin as those who want to earn God's favor do this. It begins as those who are holy. They're holy. You're holy. And beloved together in Christ do these things. You are holy in Christ. This is what theologians call definitive sanctification. Yes, holiness is something we aspire to. But it is also something we already have in Christ. Because Christ is holy and we have Him. So put on these qualities that befit who you already are corporately as the church. And notice that these, these commands can only be applied to those in the church, as the church. Again, this is... In what arena should our identity come into most full reality. It is the arena of the church. And notice also that part of the ministry that we have towards one another is not just acting like who we are in Christ, but encouraging others to see who they are in Christ. That's why we have the command to let God's Word dwell in us, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We bring psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another to remind each other of who we are in Christ so that we can all stand that way together. I think one of the biggest ways that the teaching on on personal sanctification needs to be recalibrated to a little bit more of a biblical way is that we stop thinking about it so much in terms of something that's personal. It's, It's how we are as a body of Christ. So the question we ask ourselves isn't just, how holy am I? But how holy are we? Now, of course, that can go terribly wrong if somebody thinks of themselves as other people's personal Holy Spirits, right? And then it goes terribly wrong. But it doesn't have to. If we take seriously the concern for corporate holiness, then we, we pray for one another more. We won't be able to walk into church and then leave and think we've done the church thing without actually getting to know one another deeply so that we can know how to pray for them and and have the relationships in place so that if there's a tragedy or if somebody needs to be chased after, that, that you'll have those relationships that will make it possible. How would your life in church change if, if that corporate priority on, on holiness was elevated a little higher? Well, let me conclude with uh, some thoughts towards, towards you all. It's been a joy for me to be with you for a couple of weeks. I, I thank God for your faith and the love that you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ, and so evident, and thank you for, for giving us such a warm welcome. And, and I appreciated last week, the, the, or two weeks ago rather, the Q&A time that we had, and and, you know, I was thinking about that, processing it afterwards, and I can tell that, that you've walked through some hard times, and, and there's been some pain. 
And, and I could well imagine that I read the description of our body life together and you're thinking to yourself, you're processing that in light of all that has happened to you. But, but here's, here's my challenge, is that what would it be like for you to be a church that as a church, you don't set your mind there, you set your mind on the things above. If you do that, the starting point for your identity is not who we are that happened to us over the past several years. But the starting point for your identity is who you are in Christ, as the body of Christ, raised with Him, seated with Him. You are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Start with that identity. And then there are some specific putting-offs and putting-ons that will need to happen. And they won't be easy, I'm sure. In fact, many could be painful, sort of like crucifixion is painful. Don't be surprised when that happens. And don't be like, oh no, something is going terribly wrong. Expect that, of course, there will be putting off and putting on. Until Christ comes and you are revealed in that glory that you are, there will be the putting off and putting on. But if you keep your identity in Christ as the backdrop for all that, then the context for that putting off can be at a place of kindness and compassion where you don't need to fear. The point is you have been raised with Christ. So set your minds on him and seek him. And if you keep your eyes there, God will see you through. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for this amazing reality of who we are in Christ. And we hear the call then to put off and to put on. To live like who we already are. In our inner desires and motivations. In our everyday living. And in the awesome gift that you have given us as the church. And Lord, we we know that this is through your Spirit who works within us, who is conforming us into the image of Christ. Lord, we pray that this church would have, would be growing in their faith to see the reality of who they are and would be growing in their faithfulness to continue the good work of being molded more and more into the image of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.